This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have a bonus episode featuring a report from NBC News, originally aired on April 3rd, 1941, 80 years ago today. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Good morning, everyone. Again, it's time to turn to our staff observers in England, Germany, and Washington to hear their reports on latest developments here and abroad. On this, the 579th day of the war in Europe. Let's hear first from England. Will you go ahead, London? This is John McVeigh in London. The report this morning that Count Teleki, the Hungarian Prime Minister, has committed suicide and that the Hungarian government has resigned is causing a good deal of speculation in London. No authoritative quarters are yet prepared to offer confirmation or explanation for the Hungarian developments. But observers who know the country well seem to believe that Teleki acted as he did because he could no longer stand the German pressure. One bomber was shot down by fighters into the channel this morning. The air ministry says that there has been small-scale air activity over Britain this morning, but no details are yet available. The German raiders didn't come to Britain last night, and it's understood that the RAF stayed at home, too. Yesterday, during daylight, the British carried out attacks on shipping off the Dutch coast and also attacked aerodromes in Holland and France at a cost of two planes. It is stated in London this morning that the Italians lost 178 planes in the Middle East during March. 125 of them were shot down by the RAF and colonial pilots, 21 by anti-aircraft guns, and 32 were destroyed on the ground. So far, the protest that Vichy was reported making to Britain hasn't been received in London, and there is some doubt now whether the protest was, in fact, ever drafted. One theory is that the story of the protest originated with a German radio report. It was picked up by Paris and put out with a Vichy dateline. General de Gaulle's statement yesterday in Cairo that there will not be a state of war between France and the British Empire because French national opinion will not permit it is probably the reason that the Vichy leaders haven't take the Al- taken the Algerian convoy incident farther than they have. General de Gaulle has exceptionally good information that reaches him daily on what is happening inside France and the feeling of the French people. So when he defied the Vichy men to declare war, at the same time forecasting further incidents between the Vichy forces and the British, it's a pretty good bet that he knows what he's talking about. A statement issued by Free French Headquarters says that units of the Foreign Legion, colonial troops of Equatorial Africa and the Cameroons, French Marines, Spahis, and artillery took an important part in the operations which ended in the fall of Cairn. French bombing planes were also active. General de Gaulle spent two days with the French troops in the fighting line. 
Hitler's order to his legation in Belgrade to leave Yugoslavia doesn't come as any great surprise to the British. Dispatches arriving here seem to indicate that Mussolini has failed in his attempt to get Hitler to delay the attack on Yugoslavia because of fear for his troops in Albania. As the British see it, Hitler's attack on Yugoslavia will mean the loss to Mussolini of his entire force in Albania, set at some 300,000 men. The Yugoslavs can sweep down on their flank while the Greeks continue their frontal attack. There can be no Dunkirk escape for the Italians because they haven't the navy to protect what at best would be a lengthy re-embarkation at one of the heavily bombed Albanian ports. It's being stated here today that possible revolt inside Italy itself will make it necessary for the Germans to occupy the entire country. The Evening Standard today says, It seems certain that the Italian fleet was sent to sea on German orders, possibly in order to cover a fresh dispatch of German troops to Libya. We can imagine what feeling the resulting fiasco must cause in Italian ports. Italian sailors will blame their German masters. German sailors will bewail the fate which condemns them to risk death in Italian ships. The blood brothers will be at each other's throats. British airmen who have to bail out sometimes do so in German parachutes. This was revealed yesterday by a Ministry of Economic Warfare spokesman. He said that using the German parachutes taken from Germans who have jumped over England saves the British about $140 a jump. Experts from the ministry exhibited various articles captured from German airmen and gave their deductions as to the state of Germany's supplies. One exhibit was a German naval medicine kit. Medicines were in 50 neat aluminum tubes. But elaborate as the kit was, it contained no iodine, Vaseline, or disinfectant, in all of which Germany is thought to be short. In the pockets of prisoners captured recently have been a large number of sedative drugs and sleeping tablets taken by ministry experts as a sign that the Germans are beginning to feel the strain of warfare. The Daily Express today publishes a report that Marshal Bendoglio is now a prisoner in the Royal Palace at Rome under the personal protection of King Victor Emmanuel after three attempts had been made in his life by fascist enemies. This is John McVeigh in London returning you to the National Broadcasting Company in New York. From the Associated Press, Belgrade, Yugoslavia... Germany ordered all of her legation staff, save two men, home to Berlin today in a flurry of ominous military activity. And diplomatic circles expressed belief that Adolf Hitler had decided that war with Yugoslavia was inevitable. Next, let's hear from the Reich. Incidentally, when our Berlin reporter starts talking, it will be exactly five minutes and 45 seconds past eight o'clock. So in B.C., this is Charles Lanius in Berlin. The story that is causing more interest among Americans here than the Yugoslav crisis and the German attitude to the seizure in America of German and Italian ships is the police roundup of a number of United States citizens last night. As far as I'm able to check this morning, eight male Americans, including one Negro music student, were taken into custody about half past six last night by the Berlin police. And if my information is correct, they're all at liberty today. Several were released late last night after various forms of questioning, and others were held until about four o'clock this morning after spending several hours in the bullpen. One of the men who was released early today is Mr. John Paul Dixon, 34-year-old New Yorker, and Berlin reporter for the Mutual Broadcasting System. Police came to Dixon's downtown office late yesterday evening and took him off to jail. The American embassy was notified immediately, and when First Secretary Donald Heath inquired of police headquarters for information, he was told that he would have to get in touch with the German Foreign Office. 
That, of course, was done this morning after Dixon's release. Another American who was hauled in has been a resident of Berlin for more than 30 years. Here's Mr. Arthur Dunning, president of the American Commercial Club here. Police came to his house, told him to pack a bag with clothes and toilet articles enough to last him for several days, and took him away. After some routine questioning, Mr. Dunning, who is getting along in years, was allowed to go home about 11 o'clock last night. The Negro, John Wesley Welch, here is a music student, is also at liberty. The Reverend Stuart Herman, the minister at the American church here, was taken to his local precinct police headquarters, but was sent home almost immediately when he showed his papers. A Philadelphia man, Mr. Alexander Thierry, and another American named Smith, about whom I haven't so far been able to get many details, were both picked up and questioned. Two other Americans whose names aren't available at present, but who are said to be students, had the same experience. Just what is at the bottom of the roundup is still somewhat of a mystery. I was told at the American Embassy this morning that no charges were made against any of the men. Evidently, they were simply taken in and questioned. According to the scanty stories they had to tell today, they were not mistreated in any way. On the Willemstrasse this morning, nothing was said about the affair, but I understand further inquiries into the matter will be made at the Foreign Office. The Yugoslavian crisis is uppermost in the minds of Willemstrasse officials. An authoritative source expressed three points this morning. The first was that the present Yugoslavian government is deliberately keeping the population of the country in ignorance of the actual facts. The second importance in the German viewpoint is the the anti-German activities of Yugoslavian diplomats abroad, both overseas and on the continent. This, it was said, is one of the most notable features of the crisis. Thirdly, in regard to the interference of outside powers who, according to the Germans, have no interest in the region, it would seem here that this is not only supported by the present Yugoslav government, but is actually welcomed. In any case, it was said, such interference from countries which have no business agitating in that part of the world is not in accordance with a three-power pact. Nothing is known on the Willemstrasse of a known which the Yugoslav government is said to have sent to the German government. But it's understood here that a cabinet meeting is being held in Belgrade, but no decision has been reached. In this connection, it was reiterated today that any decision on the crisis must come from Belgrade. Meanwhile, officials said, Germany is watching developments with great patience and forbearance. Today's Berlin press is filled with atrocity stories describing how the Germans were and still are being mistreated in Yugoslavia. Newspaper description of the rioting, which is said to have started eight days ago, compares the disorder to that which preceded the Polish campaign. It said that Jews threw money to the mobs and bought alcohol for the Serbs to incite them against the Germans. The seizure of Italian and German ships by the United States came in for some bitter comment on the Willemstrasse today. It was declared that Germany's protest to the United States would be made public soon, but not today. Regarding reports of further confiscations in a number of South American states, it was said officially that Germany would first settle with the United States. What to do about the South American countries involved will be decided later. There are reports that the American authorities had taken over the ship to keep the crews from sabotaging them was described here as perfect nonsense. Any captain, an official asserted, has the right to scuttle his own ship so long as he did not damage other vessels, especially when he has reason to believe that his boat is likely to fall in the hands of the enemy. This is Charles Lanius in Berlin. I now return you to NBC in New York. This is NBC in New York, and that's the news on the other side of the Atlantic this morning. We take you now to the nation's capital for Earl Godwin's report from our newsroom in Washington. 
Well, as entertaining as Charles Lanius is, the United States will not release those Axis ships, I'll bet. They may take them over and pay for them. That would be requisitioning. And they may not. I know that they spent many a long hour last night at the White House studying this thing. But the beleaguered democracies need ships the worst way. But what I really had to tell you is that the Congress of the United States is about to rear up and do something about strikes and about the costs of defense. Although the House started off its rampage with a 10-day vacation beginning this afternoon, nevertheless, the House leaves behind a double-barreled investigation into the progress of defense, and that means the strikes, too. Rarely has one heard so much criticism, spoken criticism, of the administration coming from both sides of the House as there was yesterday afternoon, all against strikes. The members are hearing from the parents of the boys at home and there were demands in the House and in the Senate also for action now to get production started. One congressman says that Red Rebellion reigns at the Alice Chalmers strike in Michigan, and another views the Ford strike as a notable victory for Adolf Hitler. Incidentally, we learned today that the Ford labor troubles are dissolving and that there may be a, a sunrise out there within a day or two, so also the coal strike. Senators Byrd of Virginia, George of Georgia, Overton of Louisiana, and Connolly of Texas have come out flat for a federal curb against strikes. But labor, as represented by the CIO unions, does not see it that way at all and refuses, as they say, to be stampeded away from the picket lines and into the plant or factories or mines. John Lewis, mine workers' chief, denounces the mediation board's formula of back to work first and settle the dispute while the men produce. In this way, John Lewis, always a dramatic figure in any crisis, may lead his side into a position where it is Lewis versus Roosevelt, CIO versus the administration. Congress resents it, seems to resent it, and it to be more troubled, vocally at least, than about the production stoppages than does the administration. Incidentally, however... While John Lewis takes that position, William Green is reported here from Philadelphia as saying this, strikes to right real wrongs are the inalienable right of free workers, but minority strikes as organizational strategy are quite another matter and endanger the freedom we seek to defend. While Congress prepares a deep committee investigation, Representative Engel of Michigan has been making a one-man tour of many training camps and is blasting away every day or two. Today he has prepared his revelations at Camp Meade, Maryland, within a few miles of the capital. Graft, waste, inefficiency, and 250% overages in cost are among Engel's charges. He says out, there has been outrageous waste in federal funds and asks for court-martials for army officers and criminal prosecutions for civilians. In the helter-skelter of defense production, prices want to go up. Coal prices, jittery over the coal strike, try to lunge forward but are restrained by one man, Leon Henderson, who's the price czar of the Defense Commission, who pegs soft coal at March 28 figures. And Earl Godwin says goodbye. That's all the news from Washington at this time. Listen to this broadcast each weekday morning at this same time. To be best informed on what's going on throughout the day, we invite you to keep your radio tuned to this station. This is the National Broadcasting Company.